Hello, and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is John Altman. John is a senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, where he holds the Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy and is director of the Middle East Program. Our conversation today focuses on the Biden administration and how it's coping with the myriad challenges the Middle East presents. John, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to be with you again, Bill. We spoke about six months ago, and that was at the point where Joe Biden had just been inaugurated, and we went around the region, the wars, JCPOA, normalization with Israel, relations with Saudi Arabia. Let's pick up on the Saudis first. Khaled bin Salman, younger brother of Mohammed bin Salman, deputy defense minister and erstwhile ambassador to Washington, who got out of town pretty quickly over the Hashoji murder, back in Washington, didn't meet the president, but got the red carpet treatment nonetheless, um, met National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, Secretary of State Blinken. How should we read that, uh, bearing in mind what you told me in February, that moving forward, the Saudis will have to take into account U.S. values? So first of all, I don't think what he got was the red carpet treatment. He got appointments, for instance, in the Defense Department with Colin Call. He's the number three guy, the undersecretary for policy. Austin stopped by, but his principal meeting was with more junior people. He did see Jake Sullivan. I think there was an effort to engage, but not an effort to give him the red carpet treatment. You didn't see a lot of the joint statements with the principals that happen when heads of state and, and senior officials uh, come to meet counterparts. I think what you've seen is you've seen Saudi Arabia over the last six months do a lot of things that, frankly, that the Biden administration considers constructive. You haven't seen the Saudis come out strong against the JCPOA or, or the negotiations. Uh, you've seen the Saudis really make an effort toward getting out of this horrible conflict in Yemen. Uh, you've seen them release Lujen Haflul and, and other uh, women's rights protesters in the kingdom. You haven't seen any reports about the, the Saudi efforts to suppress dissidents overseas. Um, it's, you've seen the Saudis play a constructive role in global oil markets. You've seen the Saudis uh, try to play a constructive role during the Gaza conflict. It feels to me, frankly, like this is a proper relationship with Saudi Arabia. It's a working relationship with Saudi Arabia. You haven't seen affection between the leaderships. You haven't seen the kind of trust that I think Saudi leaders have often sought from the United States. But it's a relationship where each side is doing things that help the other. And it struck me as a visit that sustain that without sending any messages that things are back to normal, whether the normal is the warmth of the Trump administration, whether the normal is the kind of strategic partnership the Saudis want. I can't imagine that there weren't asks on both sides. I can't imagine there aren't things that each side uh, is going to try to do for the other. But it struck me that if you were Jake Sullivan, and your feeling is you want to see if the Saudis are fully appreciative that how the U.S. responds depends how the Saudis act. I think if you're Jake Sullivan, you probably took some comfort that the U.S. said signals that Saudi behavior changed over the last six months, and the Saudis are becoming 
more constructive than they had been. And I think the question then for, for Jake Sullivan and others is how do you continue the movement toward more constructive behavior and not reverse it? Yeah, so uh, that sort of constraining mechanism. I mean, but I just want to be clear here, John, did he meet with uh, Anthony Blinken? There was some back and forth over whether it's going to be a drop by a separate meeting. I'm actually not sure uh, what the, there was a meeting that was canceled. I'm not sure what the what the final outcome was and frankly didn't didn't follow closely this issue of of what the appointment was. I know there was some disappointment on the Saudi side that they didn't get the meeting they wanted and they they canceled something, but I can't remember the details of it. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it's the CNN and others at BBC reported it as the the red carpet treatment, but but you raised some some very. I don't think that's what the red carpet looks like. I've seen the red carpet. I've seen some people who I kind of looked a little quizzically when they got the red carpet, including one of Muammar Gaddafi's sons at a time of of uh, the U.S. trying to court Gaddafi, uh, and he met with with Hillary Clinton and had pictures together. That wasn't what this is. This is what you might imagine uh, the number two Saudi defense person coming down. Look, I think what he got was the military wanted to engage with him, but the military has a lot of interests that overlap with with Saudi interests. And as the deputy defense minister, the, the military engaged with him. But I don't think this is what the <clears throat> this is what a full embrace looks like. This is what the number two Saudi official coming to an important partner looks like. Well, John, you're in Washington, and as you say, you've seen the red carpet. But but let me ask you this. Uh, BBC carried a report a couple of days ago that suggested that Mohammed bin Salman might be coming to Washington uh, sometime soon. Do you see that happening? Uh, very shortly, no. Could I imagine circumstances under which he would come? Yes, those circumstances aren't the circumstances now. I was talking with an administration official who said, yeah, I, I could see it possibly if there, there's really a, a comprehensive agreement on Yemen. I could see it if there's uh, some sort of Saudi-Israeli peace agreement. It could be part of that. But I think as, the, as part of the normal course of events, uh, I think it's very unlikely under the current circumstances. You know, the, the first um, Arab leader come, King Abdullah of Jordan, is here next week. Uh, I think there's a, a certain symbolism attached to that. But but there are a lot of Arab leaders who would like to come to Washington who are going to have to wait in line. And my guess is that Mohammed bin Salman, under current circumstances, uh, is not on the list of people whose arrival is imminent. There was a lot of talk about values in relation to human rights. Um, and yet we saw President Biden did not hold uh, withhold the 1.3 billion in foreign military financing uh, to Egypt. Uh, meanwhile, President Sisi continues the unprecedented repression of human rights. Uh, just this week, the detention of a highly respected academic charges laid against the veteran Egyptian activist Hassan Bagat is an ethical foreign policy, just not worth the paper it's written on. So, Bill, you've been following the Middle East for a while. I've certainly been following the Middle East for a while. I used to live in Egypt for, for many years. And I've been going back and forth. I think with sadness, I say this is a precedented 
repression of human rights in Egypt. It's highly precedented. It's not only precedented under President Sisi, it was precedented under Hosni Mubarak, it was precedented uh, under Anwar Sadat, it was precedented under Gamal Abdel Nasser. It feels to me like Egypt has been going back and forth. Uh, on my own podcast, I interviewed Khail Daoud, who was in prison for more than two years, uh, on what seemed to me to be totally trumped up charges, and he was recently released several months ago. Uh, Hossein Bahka is, to my mind, a patriotic Egyptian who was doing things that the Egyptians should not only tolerate, but should encourage as they seek to have a more economically vibrant and diverse society. <clears throat> I think, in point of fact, the route that I see for Egypt getting to prosperity uh, and happiness is different from the route President Sisi sees. He thinks, and he's told me so, that politics are a distorting factor in the life of a country, that politicians try to get people whipped up against each other. They drive people to extremes. And he feels that that countries work best when they are firmly led and guided. Uh, I think that leads not only to political repression, I think it leads to economic suppression. And it's hard to get all of the economic advantages out of a country where people feel they don't have freedoms, whether they be economic or political, and there are issues of, of economic freedom in Egypt as well <clears throat> that I think are concerning. You know, in terms of U.S. policy to Egypt, uh, the United States has a deep relationship with Egypt, and it is partly economic. It is partly diplomatic. Egypt played a very important role in ending the, the Gaza war as quickly as it ended. Egypt has a role in global trade, and we saw that when the Ever Given got stuck, stuck in the Suez Canal. Uh, ultimately, the U.S. is not going to be able to direct what the Egyptian government does on a whole series of internal issues because the Egyptians feel they have to live with the consequences every day, and the Americans don't have to live with them every day. And I think what the administration is going to do is it's going to seek ways to encourage the Egyptians' best instincts and discourage their worst instincts. Uh, what I've told Egyptian senior officials all the way up the chain is that their problem in Washington is not that people are hostile to Egypt, as they often imagine. The problem is people are indifferent to Egypt. People think Egypt is either uh, irredeemable or irrelevant, and that the U.S. should just ignore Egypt. And the argument I've made to them is, is they need to engage and they need to, to show dynamism across the board. And, and the possibility for that dynamism, I think, is reflected by the keen interest that Egyptians had or that Americans had in Egypt 10 years ago during the Arab Spring. I tell them and, and they don't listen to me that whether they take it to heart, whether they think about it, whether they consider it, I'm not sure. But I'll tell you one thing that I'm pretty sure of, and that is that there are no sets of tools the U.S. has to force a profound Egyptian reorientation. I think the United States is aware that the Egyptians have a growing relationship with China, a growing relationship with Russia. The United States is not completely irreplaceable. And the U.S. wants a voice. I think it wants to use that voice, as I say, to, to 
to encourage the Egyptians' best instincts. I don't think Egypt would be better off. I don't think the Egyptian people would be better off. And I don't think the United States would be better off if Egypt decided that it would uh, have a close relationship with China and not the United States, if it decided to have a close relationship with Russia and not the United States. So it's a question of, of influence. It's a question of balance. Uh, I think the Egyptians are going to see things they'd like that they're not going to get from the Biden administration as long as the human rights situation is what it is. But I also don't think the United States is going to walk away from a relationship with Egypt because the human rights situation is what it is. The U.S. will do what it's done through the Nasser period, through the Sadat period, through the Mubarak period, is try to encourage positive trends and discourage negative ones. Uh, there are people in Egypt we don't work with. We don't work with the interior ministry. You could argue the interior ministry needs the U.S. to push them to treat people better. And the U.S. has said we're not going to work with the interior ministry because we don't want to be implicated in what they do. But for the overall government, I think you're going to see the U.S. engaging with Egypt and there will be more engagement the, the, the more positively the Egyptians behave, the Egyptian government behaves, and there'll be less engagement the less positively the Egyptian government behaves. Yeah, I, it's, it's a pragmatic approach. And I think that Biden takes that approach to uh, to foreign policy clearly, uh, as you said, with the Saudis. Uh, of course, there are huge human rights issues. Uh, I believe, John, that it is much more severe than it was under Mubarak. We could debate that, but uh, it depends when any... under Mubarak. Look, Mubarak had periods of time when he threw lots of people in jail. As Sisi had periods of time, as as Sadat himself. You know, Sadat is remembered as as a great peacemaker because of what he did. Uh, with Israel, but Sadat threw thousands of people in jail, including people like Saad Adin Ibrahim, uh, in 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 uh, 1980-81. I mean, Egypt, I say this with sorrow. Egypt has had tremendous periods of repression and periods of greater openness, and and there was a hope that the 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 Arab Spring would lead to a period of openness. And the Arab Spring led to an extraordinarily mixed outcome. All right. Uh, let's move then from Egypt to Palestine. Uh, President Biden made all the right moves restoring aid to the Palestinians, and yet he finds himself backing the discredited PA and Mahmoud Abbas, who, especially since the last Israeli Gaza war, is held in utter contempt by the vast majority of Palestinians. Certainly the Palestinians I speak to, and uh, they're not died in the wool Islamists by any means. Um, whereas Hamas, a designated terrorist organization, has gained a huge level of support among ordinary people. Again, the people I talk to, not hardcore Islamists by any means. Biden's got a bit of a problem here, doesn't he? I'm not convinced that Hamas would win a free election uh, in Palestine. Uh, I'm certainly convinced that Mahmoud Abbas would not win a free election in Palestine. I think if you are Joe Biden and you're wondering what to do, his first instinct, partly because he wants to balance away from the Middle East, I think he, he feels the U.S. has has over-engaged, is you want to try to encourage an environment where U.S. engagement can make a bigger difference and not to 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 lean in at a time when things are not about to move. I think 
the, the Palestinian leadership being in disarray is a problem. You could argue Hamas leadership is in disarray, and that's a problem. And there are lots of Palestinians, especially in Gaza, who have to live under Hamas, who are sick and tired of Hamas. Uh, you have just had a, a change in the Israeli government. You have this very strange coalition, which may or may not be able to to sustain itself going forward. I think what, what the president is doing is the appropriate thing. Try to ensure that things don't really fall off the rails and look for moments where the U.S. can make a difference. And in many ways, the conclusion is that now is not the time when active diplomacy is going to make a difference. And I think you've seen um, an effort even during the Gaza war to not make this all about the United States, not make it about the U.S. ability to force outcomes, but to, to keep it at a measured level, uh, to keep the president's powder dry to the extent you can and see if you could nudge things into a, a place where, where there are opportunities to really make things happen. You said last time we talked that uh, normalization gives the administration a lot to work with. Kushner is a piece to prosperity, not much. With normalization, are you seeing dividends for the U.S.? That question links back to the previous one because the, the leaders of authoritarian MENA regimes like normalizing with Israel. The Arab Street emphatically does not. You've seen that in the Emirates. You've seen that in Bahrain. You've seen it in Egypt, certainly. Well, I think the Emirates is is divided, um, and I've been surprised the Emirates been so divided. Uh, you certainly don't see a lot of support in other places. There's sort of an acknowledgement, an, an acquiescence to it. But you're right. I mean, there's not broad support, and, and I think there's uh, there, there's a lot of distrust of it. I think it's still early days to see what it means. Um, we're just a few months in. You know, one of the consequences of all of this is is from a U.S. military perspective, Israel is going to be a member of the U.S. Central Command. We're going to come under the U.S. Central Command. That's going to make some some uh, some things possible. I don't know what the new Israeli government is going to do look like. I don't know if Israelis are going to feel that um, because of the normalization, there is more in common with Arab governments and, and less hostility. You know, some of this is going to depend on what happens on the Iran file, and they have a new government as well, and that could change. But it seems to me that 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 all of this, the animus between Israel and its neighbors grew up over many decades. And frankly, it started long before the state of Israel. And there were Israelis who thought that it might come out differently. And there were Arabs who thought it might come out differently. And, and we've been where we've been, you know, for most of a century. Uh, and there have been options for off-ramps, but we haven't taken the off-ramps for the most part. For things that take that long to develop, I think you can say, well, it hasn't totally changed in nine months. Well, no, it's not going to change in nine months, but over two years, three years, four years, 10 years, I think it may. And it's partly up to Israelis and it's partly up to Arab governments and it's partly up to uh, what populations see and what happens in their own countries. But I think it's early days to judge and I think that there, there remain possibilities, but it's going to take quite some time after uh, patterns were embedded for a very, very long time. So 
Biden is is right, then you reckon to support the normalization, but to uh, steer clear of the peace to prosperity. Well, and I look, I think the 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 United States feels that an Israel that is more integrated with the region is an Israel that is more secure, an Israel that makes the region more secure, an Israel that uh, helps contribute to more of a, a, a stable regional security environment. You know, when I was uh, supporting the Baker Hamilton Commission, we had a senator from Wyoming named Alan Simpson. And at one point he observed out of frustration that no troubled marriage ever got better when the couple decided they weren't going to talk to each other. And for the most part, the U.S. approach to diplomacy and most diplomats approach to diplomacy is if you have differences with people, you try to talk them over and minimize them and uh, and see if you can reduce tensions. I was talking to an Emirati diplomat uh, earlier this week who said we're talking to the Iranians, not because we think the Iranians are going to completely change their behavior, but to reduce tensions with the Iranians. And I think that if the Israelis talk to, to their neighbors, A, you'd find some common ground, you'd find a way to reduce tensions. And I think, frankly, there are some Israelis who would be convinced that the future can be different from the past, that you can have Israel, which is more integrated in the region. And part of that is working through the Arab community in the West Bank, Gaza, the Arab community who are Israeli citizens and charting a different course for the country. Is every Israeli going to believe that? No. Are more Israelis going to believe that? I think there will be, and that that creates possibilities for improving conditions of Arabs in Israel, which to my mind is is very important and which I wish more Israelis considered to be more important. Mm. Well, yeah, creating opportunities and, and possibilities. Uh, JCPOA, new hardline president in Iran, uh, tag end of the Rouhani, uh, presidency. Um, and now, President Biden is showing a lot of patience and caution, as you suggested he would do when we last talked. But is he doing enough to get the Chinese and the Russians back on board while reassuring the Israelis, the Saudis, the Emiratis that he has their concerns uh, in the forefront? Is a deal in the offing? I mean, it's a lot to manage. How do you think he's doing? I think he's doing pretty well. Um, you know, I think my, as I've looked at Iranian negotiating behavior for the last 20 some odd years, pretty closely. And one of the things the Iranians always seek to do is they seek to create urgency on the part of their negotiating partners while acting like they have nothing but time. And they do it by delaying meetings. They do it by drawing things out. They do it by repeating the same points over and over. They do it by saying we have problems at home. The Iranians have nothing more important on their agenda. Their negotiating counterparts often have a lot of things they're trying to manage. My own sense, which is not mirrored by everybody in the U.S. government or everybody on the the, the U.S. negotiating team, uh, is that the president's right not to rush into a deal. I know there are some people who said, oh, you have to get a deal under Rouhani because it'll be much harder under Raisi. Uh, or, oh, you have to do it before Raisi is inaugurated. I think the strategic decision to make an agreement with the United States was taken by the Supreme Leader. I think the question now is principally about timing. I think the Iranians think that by waiting, they can get something more than they have now. And I think the sort of 
that the measured approach that the Biden team has taken strikes me as the right one. The U.S. is open to a deal. The U.S. is pursuing a deal. The U.S. is being constructive. Uh, but the U.S. isn't urgent and uh, it's not desperate for one. And the Iranians can make the deal when they decide to make the deal. I think that's right. I think we're going to have to think more. Maybe they've thought this through a lot, but I think after we get the deal, there's a whole set of questions about what happens the day after and how do you deal with both the Iranian missile program and Iranian malign activity in the region. Uh, Those are serious issues. But I think taking a a relatively slow and steady approach uh, strikes me as the the right instinct. And um, and we'll see how it plays out. And the Israelis, the Saudis, the Emiratis, are they comfortable, do you reckon, with that approach? Well, I, I think the Israeli government has a diversity of views, including between the foreign minister and the and the prime minister. I think they're they're happy that the U.S. isn't rushing into it. I think there are some voices who would like to see something more comprehensive up front. Ultimately, for all of these countries in the region, the most important thing is not what's written on paper. It's where the U.S. is really committed in a very serious way to blocking the Iranians from doing hostile things against its neighbors. And that's not what gets written into the agreement with the Iranians. Uh, It's frankly not something that is written in an agreement with the neighbors. It is based on a, a commonality of interest and a commonality of views. You don't get it by taking pot shots at the president and his negotiating strategy. And I think that's what the both the, the, the new Israeli government is trying to do and the Emiratis and the and the Saudis. Let's see if we can, to the maximum extent possible, get on the same page and build common interests. And that's, I think, what 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 governments generally seek to do and what these governments are trying to do. Let's um, move on now to the wars. Uh, Libya first. Is it enough to let others take the initiative in Libya? Recent reports of the Russians reinforcing their presence there, the Turks already well ensconced, the Emiratis still very much engaged. Doesn't America need to take a stronger lead, John? Uh, Libya is the heart of the Mediterranean. After all, it's, it's, a, key, it's a key country. Um, I've yet to meet somebody in the U.S. government who thinks that Libya is is central to the security of the United States? You know, Stephanie Williams, a friend of mine who was the 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 UN representative, helped negotiate a, a an agreement that moves us toward elections. I think you've seen the U.S. play a a, a constructive role trying to disentangle the. Turks and the Emiratis and the Egyptians and the Russians and move it toward a negotiated deal. The U.S. isn't going to impose a peace on Libya. Uh, ultimately, none of the foreign powers are going to impose a peace on Libya. The, the peace on Libya is going to come from Libyans talking to Libyans. But it seems to me the U.S. has played a constructive role helping get Libyans to a point where they can take control of the future of the country. And that, I think, is the the appropriate way forward. Um, I just don't think after the the U.S. is withdrawing from 20 years of being embedded in an Afghan conflict, when the U.S. remains uh, actively involved in in both Iraq and Syria, 
I just don't think you're going to find a time when, when the U.S. is, or I don't think you're going to find a circumstance right now where the U.S. is going to be actively involved in um, in resolving conflicts uh, between domestic groups in in Libya. Well, that's yeah, that's interesting too because if we if we move on to Syria, I don't see and maybe I've missed it uh, moving forward in terms of uh, U.S. policy towards Syria towards ending that that conflict again. It's a place where Russia has stamped its authority and strengthened its military presence. Uh, it seems to me that the U.S. has almost yielded uh, uh, Syria up in that sense to the Russians. Well, and, you know, I think there's an Iranian presence in Syria. There's a Russian presence in Syria. There's a Syrian government presence in Syria. And I think you have to consider <clears throat> the real problem the administration has is what's, what is the legal basis and what is the, the national security argument for having a different strategy? Our policy in Syria, partly because of political calculation and partly because of legal constraints, was to fight ISIS in Syria. And that was largely successful. And the U.S. presence in Syria is a residual force to fight the Islamic State group. The U.S. doesn't have a legal rationale. And, and I think the, the U.S. Congress, the U.S. public is hostile to having a political rationale. The U.S. is going to introduce democracy in Syria by pushing out the Assad regime. So the question is, what should we do? I would like to see the U.S. government be a little more engaged. I would like to see the U.S. be a little uh, more aggressive against Russian moves in the country. But it seems to me that the, the, the Biden team has has taken a strategy. I've spoken to very senior people on this. The strategy is more about what they're trying to prevent happening than what they want to have happen. And arguably, the U.S. has been reasonably successful preventing things they're really determined to prevent happening in Syria. And the concern I have, which I've raised with the White House and others, is the same concern that a, a Obama administration official raised with me in about 2015, which is, tell me what your desired end state is and how you're going to try to get there. And that's what seems to me to be missing from U.S. policy in Syria. I don't understand what they're trying to build. I don't understand how what they're doing now leads to what they're trying to build. I have a long list of things they're trying to prevent, and largely they're successful preventing them. But that just keeps you on the gerbil wheel, and it doesn't help you decide where your policy is going. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, finally, then, on the, on the list of wars, Yemen, you spoke highly of Tim Lenda King. How do you think he's doing and what more could or should the Biden administration be doing to bring that particularly awful war to a close? So I've spoken to Tim. I've spoken to other people, um, you know, who watch Yemen closely in, in Yemen and elsewhere. Um, the Houthis really think that they can take Madib. And when they take Marib, uh, they can determine the shape of the, the, the negotiations for a Saudi withdrawal. I think there are a lot of people who don't think the Houthis can take Marib, that there are just too many people uh, with too many interests and too much money uh, who are determined to prevent that from happening. I don't think we can get an agreement on Yemen 
until there's more clarity on the future of Madhav. Uh, all the people I've spoken to on the UN side and the US government side tell me that the Saudis are not only open to ending things in Yemen, they want to end things in Yemen. And the problem is the Houthis are convinced that now is not the time to make a deal and they can get a better deal if they wait until they, they win this military operation in Madhub. From a negotiating perspective, if if the Houthis aren't willing to negotiate or the Houthis aren't willing to make a deal because they think that waiting will get them a better deal, you can either keep looking for openings, you can try to force the Houthis to lose. And I think there's concern about putting more weapons into this for fear that some of them would end up in Houthi hands and you wouldn't be solving the problem. You'd be making the problem worse and meaning more Yemenis die. You can make sure the Saudis stay open to negotiation. You can wait. And my my sense is that we are weeks and months, weeks or probably months away from a more auspicious time to negotiate. Until then, it's going to be very hard to to conclude an agreement. The Houthis think that time is on their side. So why would they lock in a weak position? And as long as they're as long as that's their view. I think there's a limit to what diplomacy can do. Yeah, that's a, that's a real conundrum, isn't it? Because as as long as the Houthis can take Merib, and you're right about the centrality of the Merib offensive, then the situation is in stasis. It, it has to stay that way. The Saudis have to stay in the war, bombing the Houthis when they try and move in open spaces towards Merib City. That's where they're getting knocked out. And, and so... It's hard to see then any end to this conflict. Well, I think the conflict will end, but the conflict won't end as long as one side thinks that that by not losing, it's winning. Yeah. Right. So either it wins or it loses. But as long as they're convinced they're winning, they'll only make Turn, make make a, a, an agreement on terms of a victor, and if they haven't won, then then nobody's going to make that agreement with them. A tough job for for Tim Linder King. Look, John, I, I'm I'm going to ask you a question. You probably hate me, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Which is that if you were to give a grade on Biden's approach to the Middle East in in the first six months of his administration, what what grade would you give him? I give him a B. I think he he navigated Gaza pretty well. I wish he. Uh, were a little more forward-leaning on on Syria and and had a better sense of where he was trying to lead things. I think the Iran stuff has been going as well as you could expect, and there certainly haven't been big errors. I think the Saudi relationship is as good as one could expect, given where we started, both in terms of of rectifying from the Trump administration policy and also the fact that that Saudi Arabia is still going to do a lot of things that the U.S. has problems with. Uh, I think they've been doing the right thing generally on Yemen. You know, I would I, th- I would like to see them a little more invested in the issue of the region's transition as part of the global energy transition and thinking through more of those issues. But um, but not too bad. Generally pretty good. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm, from, I'm from the old school where B is not a bad grade. 
I know now you're allowed to give students A or A minus, and if they do really poorly, a B plus. But I'd give them a B, and it's a real B. That's a, a, a tough B, but a, but one you feel is deserved. John, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Bill. Good to talk to you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was John Alterman, a senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington and director of the Center's Middle East program. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available in university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. Sign up to the free trial. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.